Chapter 23 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 23 Some Notable People President Roosevelt Lord Balfour Mr Asquith Lord Haldane George Meredith Rudyard Kipling James Barry Henry Irving Bernard Shaw R.L.S. Grant Allen James Payne Henry Thompson Royalty When I have chanced during my life to come in contact with notable people, I have often made some short record at the time of what they said and how they impressed me. It is difficult, however, to use these notes for publication when you happen to have been a guest, and it can only be done, I think, by using one's judgment and never consciously harming one's host. If everyone were altogether silent upon such occasions, the most pleasing side of great contemporaries would never be chronicled, for the statesman in slippers is a very much more human and lovable person than the politician on the platform. Among the great men that I have known, President Roosevelt occupied a prominent place. He was not a big, nor, so far as one could see, a powerful man, but he had tremendous dynamic force and an iron will which may account for his reputation as an athlete. He had all the simplicity of real greatness, speaking his mind with great frankness and in the clearest possible English. He had in him a great deal of the boy, a mischievous, adventurous, high-spirited boy with a deep, strong, thoughtful manhood in the background. We were present, my wife and I, at the Guildhall when he made his memorable speech about Egypt in which he informed a gathering which contained the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, and many of our Cabinet, that we should either rule more strictly or clear out altogether. It was, of course, a most unwarrantable intrusion into our affairs, but it was a calculated indiscretion, and very welcome, I believe, to those who were dealing with Egypt. As he made his way through the dense crowd afterwards, he passed me and said with a grin, I say, I let them have it at that time, didn't I? There was the mischievous boy coming out. He had a quick, blunt wit which showed itself often in his metaphors. He spoke to me, I remember, of someone who had a nine-guinea-pig-power brain. One of his entourage told me how the President had been awakened once to address some prairie folk at a wayside station. They have come sixty miles to see you, said his secretary. They would have come a hundred to see a cat with two heads, said the ruffled President. I met him once at a small luncheon party at the invitation of Lord Lee, who had soldiered with him in Cuba. He was extremely talkative. In fact, I can hardly remember anyone else saying anything. Thinking it over afterwards, I concluded that two ideas were running through his mind and every now and then coming to the surface. They were formidable ideas and may have been some temporary wave of feeling, but they were certainly in his thoughts. The one was that there would be another civil war in the States. The second, that if you had the farmer class on your side, they presented the best military material. From this I gathered that it was not a geographical, but an economic struggle that was in his mind. Absit omen, but great men are often pessimists, 
and the Duke of Wellington was deeply convinced that Britain could not long survive his death. When Roosevelt was shot, I sent him a cable to express that sympathy which every Englishman felt. I have his answer before me, written only a day or so after the event. Mercy Hospital, Chicago, October 19th, 1912 Dear Mr. Doyle, Many thanks for your kind message of sympathy. As you know, a bullet wound is rather a serious thing, but all conditions seem to be favourable, and I hope in a few days we will all be relieved from anxiety. Sincerely yours, Theodore Roosevelt. It is typewritten, but signed by his own hand. I do not think that a more brave and detached letter was ever written by a sufferer. Roosevelt was a very loud, hearty man, with a peculiar wild beast, toothy grin, and an explosive habit of slapping his hand down for emphasis. I jotted down a few of his obiter dicta after our conversation. He had no good word for Henry James. He is not a whole man. All that subtlety is really decadence. He was very virile, not to say heroic, in his views. A man should guard particularly against being led from his duty, especially a dangerous duty, by his women. I guess a woman would have had a bad time if she had tried to lead Leonidas from the pass. Of the German emperor, he said that he was jealous of the king's dog at the king's funeral because he attracted the more notice. Altogether, he was one of the raciest talkers I have ever met. Among the occasional great ones of earth whom I have met, there is hardly anyone who stands out more clearly than Arthur Balfour, with his willowy figure, his gentle intellectual face, and, as I read it, his soul of steel. I should think that of all men of our day, he was the last who would be turned from any path which he had deliberately taken. But on the other hand, he was capable of standing a most unconscionable time at the place where paths divide, for his mind was so subtle and active that he would always see the two sides of every question and waver between them. He could never have been a pioneer. The occasion of our first meeting was a most ridiculous one. Old Lord Burnham, the first of his line, had invited me down to his country house at Beaconsfield, a wonderful house which had been built originally by Waller, the royalist poet. Burke had lived close by, and the dagger which, in a melodramatic moment, he threw upon the floor of the house, in order to show the dangers of French Republican propaganda, is still on exhibition. I can remember the party well, though nearly all of them are now on the farther side. I see Lady Dorothy Neville, with her mittened hands and her prim pussy-cat manner, retailing gossip about Disraeli's flirtations. Sir Henry James walks under the trees with bended head, talking to the rising barrister, who is destined, as Lord Reading, to be Viceroy of India. Lady Cleveland, mother of Lord Rosebery, is listening with her old face wreathed in smiles to Lady Dorothy's scandal. Young Harry Irving looks unutterably bored, as Lord Burnham explains golf to him, bending his head over to get a glimpse of the ball round the curve of his goodly waistcoat. Mr Asquith stands smiling beside them. As one looks back, they seem all to have been shadows in a world of shadow. Lord Burnham's hobby was Turkish baths, and he had an excellent one in the front of the house, the drying room being the first door on the right as one entered, and being a simple sitting-room as far as appearance went. With his usual kind hospitality, Lord Burnham had urged me to try his bath, and having done so I was placed, arrayed in a long towel, 
and with another towel screwed round my head in the drying room. Presently the door opened and entered Arthur Balfour, Prime Minister of England. He knew nothing of the house or its ways, and I can remember the amazement with which he gazed at me. Lord Burnham following at his heels introduced me, and I raised the towel on my head. There were no explanations, and I felt that he went away with the impression that this was my usual costume. I did not see him after that weekend. He kept his room, I remember, until midday on the Sunday, until some years later, when after heavy domestic loss, I was endeavouring to collect myself again in a little inn near Dunbar. He heard of my presence, and in his kindness sent a car over from Whittingham, only a few miles away with a request that I should come over for a couple of days. There were present his brother, Gerald Balfour, a man with a beautifully refined face and manner, not unlike that of Andrew Lang. His wife is the famous Lady Betty Balfour, the daughter of Lord Lytton. When one thinks of that group of inter-allied families, the Balfours, Cecils, Sedgwicks and Lyttons, it seems a sort of nerve ganglion of British life. There was also Lady Frances Balfour, who was a daughter of the Duke of Argyle, and not unlike him, as I can remember him. Her husband was Arthur Balfour's brother, an architect and antiquary, while another brother was Colonel of the London Scottish. Finally, there was Miss Alice Balfour, a very sweet and gentle intellectual person who was my actual hostess. I found Arthur Balfour in great spirits because he had just won a golf medal at North Berwick. He seemed as pleased as any schoolboy, and his sister told me that no political success ever gave him the keen pleasure which he had from his golf victory. He was an average player, orthodox in style, and about ten or twelve in handicap. He proved to be a charming host, for he was a good listener, seeming to be really eager to hear your opinion, laughed heartily at small provocation, and talked always very frankly and modestly of himself. After my long solitude I was more loquacious. I remember than is my way, but he bore it with good humour. Every night, or at least on the Sunday night, the whole staff of the large rambling establishment, maids and grooms, some twenty in all, came in for prayers, which were read by the head of the house. It was fine to hear groom and statesman praying humbly together that they be forgiven the sins of the day, and merging all earthly distinctions in the presence of that which is above us all. He was very interesting when he spoke of the outrage which the Russian fleet had committed when, on their way to Japan, they opened fire at the British trawlers on the Dogger Bank. It was curious to hear his gentle voice and to note his listless impersonal manner while he spoke in this fashion. I was very angry, really very angry about that affair. If our fleet had been at home, I should have been inclined to have stopped them in the straits. Of course, one would not do that unless one had an overpowering force, so as to avoid bloodshed and save the Russian face. Their ambassador called that morning and gave complete assurances, or really I should have had to do something. He got himself into trouble with his own government, who felt that he had given away their case. I asked him how cabinet councils were worked. He said that they voted upon points and went by majorities, unless it was a vital thing, when of course the dissenters must resign. I observed in his character a very great horror of cowardice. Nothing seemed to arouse such scorn in him. He grew quite red, I remember, as he spoke of Lord George Sackville, and realised that, though he had been broken and should have been shot at the Battle of Minden, 
1759. He was nonetheless Minister of War during the American campaign. He was also, as I reminded him, a most debauched man, and the murder of his mistress, Miss Ray, the actress by her true lover, the clergyman Hackman, was one of the cause celebres of that century. I shall always carry away the memory of that visit, a bright gleam in a dark passage of life. I see very clearly the old house, the huge broken tree outside, inside which a state conspiracy was once hatched, the fine library with its wealth of French memoirs, and above all the remarkable man who stood for so much in the life of the country. I was not at that time so convinced of the primary importance of psychic things as I became later, and I regret it, as this would have been my one opportunity to explore a knowledge which at that time was certainly greater than my own. Years later, when the fight was heavy upon me, and when I was almost alone in the polemical arena, I wrote to Mr. Balfour and charged him with sharing all my convictions and yet leaving me to defend them single-handed. His answer was, Surely my opinions upon this subject are already sufficiently well known, which is surely an admission that I was right in my description of them, and yet was not much of a prop to me in my time of need. I cast my mind back to other statesmen whom I have known, and Mr. Asquith's kindly personality comes into my memory. I remember playing a round of golf with him once, and a very bad player he was, but his conversation as we went round was plus four. He was a naturally sweet-natured man, but under that gentleness there lay judgment and firmness, as was shown at the great crisis of history. He never said too much, but what he did say he lived up to. In conducting us safely through those first two years of war, he did that for which he has never had sufficient credit, and the more light we have had since, the more clear it has been that Lord Kitchener and he were really doing all that men could do, in munition work and all other ways. Because he had the solid Yorkshire stolidity, more nervous and excitable people thought that he did not take the war sufficiently seriously, while the constant lies about the pro-German tendencies of his wife increased the evil impression. We owe him a reparation, which is second only to that which is due to Lord Haldane. And that is indeed a heavy one. If one man could be named who was absolutely indispensable to victory, it was Haldane. He it was who built up the whole splendid weapon, which flashed so swiftly from its sheath, and which Germany was so amazed to find directed at its breast, as it rushed forward upon its furious course. He could not work miracles. He could not introduce conscription, when a candidate with such a programme would have been chased from the hustings. He could not prepare the public mind in some dramatic way which would have precipitated the very crash which there was still some chance of avoiding. But all we had he gave us, the eight divisions which saved France, the territorials who carried on the good work until the new armies were ready, and the officers' training corps which strengthened us where we should have been fatally weak. There has never been so foolish and ungrateful a clamour as that which has been raised against Haldane. I remember that when he took the chair for me in the first war lecture, which I gave in London, there were cries of traitor from people, chiefly women, among the audience. I had never seen Haldane before, and have never seen him since, so I have no personal bias in the matter, 
but I am proud that it was in my first volume of the History of the War, published in 1915, that I first put forward the unpopular view which will now be more fully accepted. With George Meredith, I had several interesting connections. I have the greatest possible admiration for him at his best, while his worst is such a handicap that I think it will drag four-fifths of his work to oblivion. If his own generation finds him hard to understand, what will our descendants make of him? He will be a cult among a few, a precious few in every sense, and yet I fully recognise that his was the most active original brain and the most clever pen of any man novelist or otherwise of my time. Knowing this well, it is strange that I can see so limited a future for him. His subtle and intricate mind seemed unable to realise the position of the plain outsiders who represent the world. He could not see how his stained glass might be less effective than the plain transparent substance as a medium for vision. The first requisite is to be intelligible. The second is to be interesting. The third is to be clever. Meredith enormously filled the third, but he was unequal upon the other two. Hence he will never, in spite of the glories of Richard Feverell, be on an equality with Dickens or Thackeray, who filled all three. He had simply no idea how his words would strike a less complex mind. I remember that once, in the presence of Barry, Quilla Cooch and myself, he read out a poem which he had inscribed to the British Working Man in the Westminster Gazette. I don't know what the British Working Man made of it, but I am sure that we three were greatly puzzled as to what it was about. I had written some articles on his work, which had been one of my youthful cults, and that led to his inviting me to see him at his villa at Box Hill, the first of several such visits. There had been a good deal in the papers about his health, so that I was surprised when, as I opened the garden gate, a slight but robust gentleman in a grey suit and a red tie swung out of the hall door and came singing loudly down the path. I suppose he was getting on to seventy at the time, but he looked younger, and his artistic face was good to the eye. Greeting me, he pointed to a long steep hill behind the house and said, I have just been up to the top for a walk. I looked at the sharp slope and said, You must be in good trim to do it. He looked angry and said, That would be a proper compliment to pay to an octogenarian. I was a little nettled by his touchiness, so I answered, I understood that I was talking to an invalid. It really seemed as if my visit would terminate at the garden gate, but presently he relented and we soon became quite friendly. He had in his youth been a judge of wine, and had still a reverence for a good vintage, but unfortunately some nervous complaint from which he suffered had caused the doctors to prohibit it absolutely. When lunch came round, he asked me with a very earnest air whether I could undertake to drink a whole bottle of Burgundy. I answered that I saw no insuperable difficulty. A dusty old bottle was tenderly carried up, which I disposed of, Meredith taking a friendly interest in its dispatch. The fact is, said he, I love my wine, and my little cellar was laid down with care and judgment, so that when some guest comes and drinks a glass, and wastes the rest of the bottle, it goes to my heart. It really did me good to see you enjoy that one. I need not say that I intimated that I was always prepared to oblige. His conversation was extraordinarily vivid and dramatic, uttered in a most vehement tone. 
It may have been artificial and it may have been acting, but it was very arresting and entertaining. The talk got upon Napoleon's marshals, and you would have thought that he knew them intimately, and he did Murat's indignation at being told to charge Obu, as if he ever charged any other way, in a fashion which would have brought down the house. Every now and then he brought out a Meredithian sentence, which sounded comic when applied to domestic matters. When the jelly swayed about as the maid put it on the table, he said, The jelly, Mary, is as treacherous as the Trojan horse. He laughed when I told him how my groom, enlisted as a waiter for some special dinner, said, Hud up there to the jelly under similar circumstances. After lunch we walked up a steep path to the little chalet or summer-house where he used to write. He wished to read me a novel, which he had begun twenty years before, but which he had not had the heart to go on with. I liked it greatly, and we roared with laughter at his description of an old sea-dog, who turned up the collar of his coat when he went into action as if the bullets were rain. He said that my hearty enjoyment encouraged him to go on with it, and it has since appeared as the amazing marriage— but whether I really had anything to do with it, I do not know. I should be proud to think so. The nervous complaint from which he suffered caused him to fall down occasionally. As we walked up the narrow path to the chalet, I heard him fall behind me, but judged from the sound that it was a mere slither and could not have hurt him. Therefore I walked on as if I had heard nothing. He was a fiercely proud old man, and my instincts told me that his humiliation in being helped up would be far greater than any relief I could give him. It was certainly a nice point to decide. George Meredith's religious convictions were very difficult to decide. He certainly had no glimmering, so far as I could see, of any psychic element in life, and I should imagine that on the whole he shared the opinions of his friend, John Morley, which were completely negative. And yet I remember his assuring me that prayer was a very necessary thing, and that one should never abandon prayer. Who rises from prayer a better man, his prayer is granted, says the aphorist in Richard Feverell. How far these positions can be harmonised I do not know. I suppose that one may say that God is unknown, and yet rear a mental temple to the unknown God. Rudyard Kipling I know far less than I should, considering how deeply I admire his writings, and that we live in the same country but we are both absorbed in work, and both much away from home, which may explain it. I can well remember how eagerly I bought his first book, Plain Tales, in the old South Sea days, when buying a book was a rare strain upon my exchequer. I read it with delight and realised not only that a new force had arisen in literature, but that a new method of story-writing had appeared, which was very different from my own adherence to the careful plot artfully developed. This was go-as-you-please, take-it-or-leave-it work, which glowed suddenly up into an incandescent phrase or paragraph, which was the more effective for its sudden advent. In form, his stories were crude, and yet in effect, which after all is everything, they were superb. It showed me that methods could not be stereotyped, and that there was a more excellent way, even if it were beyond my reach. I loved the Barrack Room Ballads also, and such poems as the Bolivar, East and West, and above all the badly named L'Envoy, became part of my very self. I always read the last one aloud to my little circle before we start on any fresh expedition, because it contains the very essence of travel, romance, and high adventure.
I saw Kipling most nearly in his very early days when he lived at Brattleborough, a little village in Vermont, in a chivalrous desire to keep his newly married wife in touch with her own circle. In 1894, as I have recorded, there was a good deal of tail-twisting going on in the States, and Kipling pulled a few feathers out of the eagle's tail in retaliation, which caused many screams of protest, for the American was far more sensitive to such things than the case-hardened Briton. I say was, for I think as a nation, with an increased assurance of their own worth and strength, they are now more careless of criticism. The result at the time was to add oil to flames, and I, as a passionate believer in Anglo-American Union, wrote to Kipling to remonstrate. He received my protest very good-humouredly, and it led to my visit to his country home. As a matter of fact, the concern shown in America, when the poet lay at death's door a few years later, showed that the rancour was not very deep. Perhaps he was better known at that time in America than in England, for I remember sitting beside a bushman in London, who bowed his red face to my ear and said, "'Beg your pardon, sir, but who is this ear Kilpin?' I had two great days in Vermont, and have a grateful remembrance of Mrs. Kipling's hospitality. The poet read me MacAndrew's hymn, which he had just done, and surprised me by his dramatic power, which enabled him to sustain the Glasgow accent throughout, so that the angular Scottish greaser simply walked the room. I had brought up my golf clubs and gave him lessons in a field, while the New England rustics watched us from afar, wondering what on earth we were at, for golf was unknown in America at that time. We parted good friends, and the visit was an oasis in my rather dreary pilgrimage as a lecturer. My glimpses of Kipling since then have been few and scattered, but I had the pleasure several times of meeting his old father, a most delightful and lovable person, who told a story quite as well as his famous son. As the mother was also a very remarkable woman, it is no wonder that he carried such a cargo. James Barry is one of my oldest literary friends, and I knew him within a year or two of the time when we both came to London. He had just written his window in Thrums, and I, like all the world, acclaimed it. When I was lecturing in Scotland in 1893, he invited me to Kiri Muir, when I stayed some days with his family, splendid types of the folk who have made Scotland great. His father was a fine fellow, but his mother was wonderful with a head and a heart, rare combinations which made me class her with my own mother. Kiri Muir could by no means understand Barry's success, and looked upon their great son as an inexplicable phenomenon. They were acutely aware, however, that tourists were arriving from all parts to see the place, on account of Barry's books. "'I suppose you have read them,' I said to the wife of the local hotel man. "'Ay, I've read them, and steep, steep weary work it was,' said she. She had some theory that it was a four-horse coach, which her good man was running, and not the books at all which accounted for the boom. "'Great as are Barry's plays, and some of them, I think, are very great,' I wish he had never written a line for the theatre. The glamour of it, and the, to him, easy success, have diverted from literature the man with the purest style of his age. Plays are always ephemeral, however good, and are limited to a few, but Barry's unborn books might have been an eternal and a universal asset of British literature. He has the chaste clarity which is the great style, which has been debased by a generation of wretched critics, 
who have always confused what is clear with what is shallow and what is turbid with what is profound. If a man's thought is precise, his rendering of it is precise, and muddy thoughts make obscure paragraphs. If I had to make my choice among modern stylists, I should pick Barry for the lighter forms of expression and our British Winston Churchill for the more classical. Barry's great play, one of the finest in the language, is, of course, the admirable Crichton. I shall always hope that I had a hand in the fashioning of it. I say this not in complaint, but in satisfaction, for we all drop seeds into each other, and seldom know whence they come. We were walking together on the heath at Kirimuir when I said, I had a quaint thought in the night, Barry. It was that a king was visiting India, and was wrecked on the way on some island far from the track of ships. Only he and one rather handy sailor were saved. They settled down to spend their lives together. Of course the result would be that the sailor would become the king, and the king the subject. We chuckled over the idea, and when Crichton appeared, I seemed to see the fine plant which had grown from the tiny seed. Barry and I had one unfortunate venture together, in which I may say that the misfortune was chiefly mine, since I had really nothing to do with the matter, and yet shared all the trouble. However, I should have shared the honour and profit in case of success, so that I have no right to grumble. The facts were that Barry had promised Mr. Doily Cart that he would provide the libretto of a light opera for the Savoy. This was in the Gilbert days, when such a libretto was judged by a very high standard. It was an extraordinary commission for him to accept, and I have never yet been able to understand why he did so, unless, like Alexander, he wanted fresh worlds to conquer. On this occasion, however, he met with a disastrous repulse, and the opera, Jane Annie, to which I alluded in an early chapter, was one of the few failures in his brilliant career. I was brought into the matter because Barry's health failed on account of some family bereavement. I had an urgent telegram from him at Oldborough, and going there I found him very worried because he had bound himself by this contract, and he felt in his present state unable to go forward with it. There were to be two acts, and he had written the first one, and had the rough scenario of the second, with the complete sequence of events, if one may call it a sequence. Would I come in with him, and help him to complete it as part author? Of course, I was very happy to serve him in any way. My heart sank, however, when after giving the promise, I examined the work. The only literary gift which Barry has not got is the sense of poetic rhythm, and the instinct for what is permissible in verse. Ideas and wit were in abundance, but the plot itself was not strong, though the dialogue and the situations also were occasionally excellent. I did my best and wrote the lyrics for the second act, and much of the dialogue, but it had to take the predestined shape. The result was not good. However, the actual comradeship of production was very amusing and interesting, and our failure was mainly painful to us because it let down the producer and the cast. We were well abused by the critics, but Barry took it all in the bravest spirit. I find in looking over my papers a belated statement of account from Barry, which is good reading, in account with Mr. J. M. Barry. Y. A. One pound lent at station. Cause of delay. Object moving too fast. Remarks. Doyle says he lent it. B. Why? 
£12. Jane Annie on tour. Cause of delay. Moving or swaying of Kodak. Remarks. Better late than never. C. Why. £30, 6 shillings and fourpence. Heaven knows. Cause of delay. Failure to pull cord. Remarks. Doyle gets two-fifths of a penny beyond his share. Our associations were never so closely renewed, but through all my changing life I have had a respect and affection for Barry which were, I hope, mutual. How I collaborated with him at cricket as well as at work is told in my chapter on sport. Henry Irving is one of the other great men who I have met at close quarters for his acting of Gregory Brewster brought us in contact. When he was producing Coriolanus, he came down to Hindhead and used to drop in of an evening. He was fond of a glass of port. Indeed, he was one of the four great men who were stated, probably untruly, by the Honourable G. Russell to drink a bottle each night, being the only trait which these great men had in common. The others, I remember, were Tennyson, Gladstone and Moses Montefiore, and the last, I believe, was really true. Like all bad habits, it overtook the sinner at last, and he was cut off at the age of a hundred and sixteen. Irving had a curious dry wit, which was occasionally sardonic and ill-natured. I can well believe that his rehearsals were often the occasion for heart-burnings among the men and tears among the ladies. The unexpectedness of his remarks took one aback. I remember when my friend Hamilton sat up with me into the wee smart hours with the famous man, he became rather didactic on the subject of the deity, or the universe, or some other tremendous topic, which he treated very solemnly and at great length. Irving sat with his intense eyes riveted upon the speaker's face, which encouraged Hamilton to go on, and on. When at last he had finished, Irving remarked, "'What a low comedian you would have made!' He wound up his visit by giving me his copy of Coriolanus, with all his notes and stage directions, a very precious relic. Many visions of old times rise before my eyes as I write, but my book would lose all proportion should I dwell upon them. I see Henley, the formidable cripple, a red-bearded, loud-voiced buccaneer of a man, who could only crawl, for his back appeared to be broken. He was a great poet and critic who seemed to belong to the roaring days of Marlowe, of the mighty line and the pothouse fray. I see Haggard, too, first as the young spruce diplomatist, later as the worn and bearded man, with strange vague tendencies to mysticism. Shaw, too, I see, with the pleasant silky voice and the biting phrase. It was strange that all the mild vegetables which formed his diet made him more pugnacious, and, I must add, more uncharitable than the carnivorous man, so that I have known no literary man who was more ruthless to other people's feelings. And yet to meet him was always to like him. He could not resist a bitter jest or the perverted pleasure of taking up an unpopular attitude. As an example, I remember Henry Irving telling me that when Shaw was invited to his father's funeral, he wrote in reply, If I were at Westminster, Henry Irving would turn in his grave, just as Shakespeare would turn in his grave, were Henry Irving at Stratford. I may not have it verbally exact, but that was near enough. It was the kind of outrageous thing that he would say, and yet one can forgive him all 
when one reads the glorious dialogue of some of his plays. He seems subhuman in emotion and superhuman in intellect. Shaw was always a thorn in Irving's side and was usually the one jarring note among the chorus of praise which greeted each fresh production. At a first night at the Lyceum, those wonderful first nights which have never been equalled, the lanky Irishman with his greenish face, his red beard and his sardonic expression must have been like the death's head at the banquet to Irving. Irving ascribed this animosity to Shaw's peak because his plays were not accepted, but in this I am sure that he did an injustice. It was simply that contrary twist in the man which makes him delight in opposing whatever anyone else approved. There is nothing constructive in him, and he is bound to be in perpetual opposition. No one, for example, was stronger for peace and for non-militarism than he, and I remember that when I took the chair at a meeting at Hindhead to back up the Tsar's peace proposals at The Hague, I thought to myself as I spied Shaw in a corner of the room, well, this time at any rate he must be in sympathy. But far from being so, he sprang to his feet and put forward a number of ingenious reasons why these proposals for peace would be disastrous. Do what you could, he was always against you. Perhaps it is no bad thing to have the other point of view continually stated, and the British stand that sort of thing better than other nations. Had Shaw said in America what he said in England about the war, whilst it was in progress, he would have been in personal danger. There were times, however, when his queer, contrary impulses became perfectly brutal in their working. One was at the time of the Titanic disaster, when he deliberately wrote a letter at a time when the wounds were raw, overwhelming everyone concerned with bitter criticism. I was moved to write a remonstrance, and we had a sharp debate in public, which did not in any way modify our kindly personal relations. I can recall a smaller but even more unjustifiable example of his sour nature when he was staying at Hindhead. A garden party had been got up for some charity and it included the woodland scenes of As You Like It, which were done by amateurs, and very well done too. Shaw, with no provocation, wrote a whole column of abuse in the local paper, spattering all the actors and their performance with ridicule and covering them with confusion though indeed they had nothing to be ashamed of. One mentions these things as characteristic of one side of the man, and as a proof, I fear, that the adoption by the world of a vegetarian diet will not bring unkind thoughts or actions to an end. But with it all, Shaw is a genial creature to meet, and I am prepared to believe that there is a human kindly side to his nature, though it has not been presented to the public. It took a good man to write St. Joan. Wells, too, I have known long, and indeed I must have often entered the draper's shop in which he was employed at Southsea, for the proprietor was a patient of mine. Wells is one of the great fruits which popular education has given us, since he came, as he is proud to state, from the heart of the people. His democratic frankness and complete absence of class feeling are occasionally embarrassing, I remember his asking me once if I had played cricket at Liphook. I said that I had. He said, Did you notice an old fellow who acts as professional and groundkeeper? I said that I had. That was my father, said Wells. I was too much surprised to answer, 
and could only congratulate myself that I had made no unpleasant comments before I knew the identity of the old man. I have always had my doubts as to those elaborate forecasts of the future in which Wells indulges. He has, it is true, made a couple of good shots which have already materialised in the tanks and in the machine which would deliver news in our own houses. But he has never shown any perception of the true meaning of the psychic, and for want of it his history of the world, elaborate and remarkable as it was, seemed to me to be a body without a soul. However, this also may be given him, and it will make his equipment complete. I remember discussing the matter with him, when George Gissing, Hornung, he and I foregathered in Rome early in this century. But apparently my words had no effect. Willie Hornung, my brother-in-law, is another of my vivid memories. He was a Dr. Johnson, without the learning, but with a finer wit. No one could say a neater thing, and his writings, good as they are, never adequately represented the powers of the man, nor the quickness of his brain. These things depend upon the time and the fashion, and go flat in the telling. But I remember how, when I showed him the record of someone who claimed to have done a hundred yards under ten seconds, he said, It is a sprinter's error. Golf he could not abide, for he said it was unsportsmanlike to hit a sitting ball. His criticism upon my Sherlock Holmes was, Though he might be more humble, there is no police like Holmes. I think I may claim that his famous character Raffles was a kind of inversion of Sherlock Holmes, Bunny playing Watson. He admits as much in his kindly dedication. I think there are few finer examples of short story writing in our language than these, though I confess I think they are rather dangerous in their suggestion. I told him so before he put pen to paper, and the result has, I fear, borne me out. You must not make the criminal a hero. Jerome, too, is an old friend. He is an adventurous soul, and at one time started a four in hand. I remember sitting on the top of it, and when one of the leaders turned right round and took a good look at the driver, I thought it was time to get down. Maxwell also is an old friend. He is, of course, the son of Miss Braddon, who married a publisher of that name. I respect him for doing a man's work in the war when, though he was fifty years of age, and had led a sedentary life, he volunteered for a fighting battalion, a credit which he shares with A.E.W. Mason. Maxwell's work has always greatly appealed to me, and I have long looked upon him as the greatest novelist that we possess. I never met Robert Louis Stevenson in the flesh, though I owe so much to him in the literary spirit. Never can I forget the delight with which I read those early stories of his in the Cornhill, before I knew the name of the author. I still think that the pavilion on the links is one of the great short stories of the world, though there were alterations in the final form which were all for the worse, and showed prudery upon the part of the publishers. Stevenson's last year at Edinburgh University must have just about coincided with my first one, and Barry must also have been in that grey old nest of learning, about the year 1876. Strange to think that I probably pushed elbows with both of them in the crowded portal. From his faraway home in Samoa, he seemed to keep a quick eye upon literary matters in England, and I had most encouraging letters from him in 1893 and 1894. O frolic fellow spookist was his curious term of personal salutation in one of these, 
which showed that he shared my interest in psychic research, but did not take it very seriously. I cannot guess how at that time he had detected it, though I was aware that he had himself in early days acted as secretary to a psychic research, or rather to a spiritualist society in Edinburgh, which studied the remarkable mediumship of Dugood. His letters to me consisted of kind appreciation of my work. I have a great talent for compliment, he said, accompanied by a hateful and even a diabolic frankness. He had been retailing some of my Sherlock Holmes yarns to his native servants. I should not have thought that he needed to draw upon anyone else, and he complained to me in a comical letter of the difficulty of telling a story when you had to halt every moment to explain what a railway was, what an engineer was, and so forth. He got the story across in spite of all difficulties and said he, If you could have seen the bright feverish eyes of Simite, you would have tasted glory. But he explained that the natives took everything literally, and that there was no such thing as an imaginary story for them. I, who write this, have had the indiscretion to perpetuate a trifling piece of fiction, the bottle imp. Parties who come up to visit my mansion, after having admired the ceiling by Van der Putty and the tapestry by Gobling, manifest towards the end a certain uneasiness which proves them to be fellows of an infinite delicacy. They may be seen to shrug a brown shoulder, to roll up a speaking eye, and at last the secret bursts from them. Where is the bottle? In another letter, he said that as I had written of my first book in The Idler, he also would do so. I could not hold back where the white plume of Conan Doyle waved in front of me. So at least I may boast that it is to me that the world owes the little personal sketch about Treasure Island, which appeared in that year. I cannot forget the shock that it was to me when driving down the Strand in a handsome cab in 1896, I saw upon a yellow evening poster, Death of Stevenson. Something seemed to have passed out of my world. I was asked by his executors to finish the novel St. Ives, which he had left three quarters completed, but I did not feel equal to the task. It was done, however, and I understand very well done by Quilla Cooch. It is a desperately difficult thing to carry on another man's story, and must be a more or less mechanical effort. I had one experience of it when my neighbour at Hindhead, Grant Allen, was on his deathbed. He was much worried because there were two numbers of his serial, Hilda Wade, which was running in the Strand magazine, still uncompleted. It was a pleasure for me to do them for him, and so relieve his mind. But it was difficult collar work, and I expect they were pretty bad. Some time afterwards a stranger, who evidently confused Alan and me, wrote to say that his wife had given him a baby girl, and that in honour of me he was calling her Hilda Wade. He was really nearer the truth than appeared at first sight. I well remember that deathbed of Grant Allen's. He was an agnostic of a type which came very near atheism, though in his private life an amiable and benevolent man. Believing what he did, the approach of death must have offered rather a bleak prospect, and as he had paroxysms of extreme pain, the poor fellow seemed very miserable. I had often argued the case with him, I from a theistic and he from a negative point of view, but I did not intrude my opinions or disturb his mind at that solemn moment. 
Deathbed changes, though some clergy may rejoice in them, are really vain things. His brain, however, was as clear as ever, and his mind was occupied with all manner of strange knowledge, which he imparted in the intervals of his pain, in the curious high nasal voice which was characteristic. I can see him now, his knees drawn up to ease internal pain, and his long thin nose and reddish grey goatee protruding over the sheet while he croaked out, Byzantine art, my dear Doyle, was of three periods, the middle one roughly coinciding with the actual fall of the Roman Empire, the characteristics of the first period, and so on, until he would give a cry, clasp his hands across his stomach, and wait till the pain passed before resuming his lecture. His dear little wife nursed him devotedly, and mitigated the gloom of those moments, which can be made the very happiest in life if one understands what lies before one. One thinks, as a contrast, of Dr. Hodgson's impatient cry, I can hardly wait for death. Grant Allen's strong opinions in print, and a certain pleasure he took in defending outside positions, gave quite a false view of his character, which was gentle and benignant. I remember his coming to a fancy dress ball which we gave in the character of a cardinal, and in that guise all the quiet dignity of the man seemed to come out, and you realised how much our commonplace modern dress disguises the real man. He used to tell with great amusement how a couple, who afterwards became close friends, came first to call, and how as they waited on the doorstep the wife said to the husband, Remember, John, if he openly blasphemes, I leave the room. He had, I remember, very human relations with the maids, who took a keen interest in their employer's scientific experiments. On one occasion these were connected with spiders, and the maid rushed into the drawing-room and cried, Oh, sir, Araminta has got a wasp. Araminta was the name given to the big spider which he was observing at the time. Grant Allen had no actual call to write fiction, but his brain was agile enough to make some sort of job of anything to which it turned. On the other hand, as a popular scientist, he stood alone, or shared the honour with Samuel Lang. His only real success in fiction was the excellent short story John Creedy, where he combined science with fiction, with remarkable results. At the time when I and so many others turned to letters, there was certainly a wonderful vacancy for the newcomer. The giants of old had all departed. Thackeray, Dickens, Charles Reed and Trollope were memories. There was no great figure remaining, save Hardy. The rising novelist was Mrs. Humphrey Ward, who was just beginning her career with Robert Ellesmere, the first of that series of novels which will illuminate the later Victorian era more clearly than any historian ever can do. I think it was Hodgkin who said, when he read Count Robert of Paris, Here have I been studying Byzantium all my life, and I never understood it until this blessed Scotch lawyer came along. That is the special prerogative of imagination. Trollope and Mrs. Ward have the whole Victorian civilization dissected and preserved. Then there were Meredith, unintelligible to most, and Walter Besant. There was Wilkie Collins, too, with his fine stories of mystery, and finally there was James Payne. 
Payne was much greater than his books. The latter were usually rather mechanical, but to get at the real man, one has to read such articles as his literary reminiscences, and especially his backwater of life. He had all that humorous view which nature seems to give as a compensation to those whose strength is weak. Had Payne written only essays, he would have rivalled Charles Lamb. I knew him best in his latter days, when he was crippled with illness, and his poor fingers so twisted with rheumatic arthritis that they seemed hardly human. He was intensely pessimistic as to his own fate. Don't make any mistake, Doyle. Death is a horrible thing. Horrible. I suffer the agonies of the damned. But five minutes later he would have his audience roaring with laughter, and his own high treble laugh would be the loudest of all. His own ailments were frequently a source of mirth. I remember how he described the breaking of a blood vessel in Bournemouth, and how they carried him home on a litter. He was dimly conscious of the fir woods through which he passed. I thought it was my funeral, and that they had done me well in the matter of plumes. When he told the story he was so carried away by his sense of humour that he could hardly get the end out, and he finished up in a kind of scream. An American had called upon him at some late hour, and had discoursed upon Assyrian tablets. I thought there was something to eat, he screamed. He was an excellent whist player, and the Baldwin Club used to send three members to his house on certain days, so that the old fellow should not go without his game. This game was very scientific. He would tell with delight how he asked some novice, Do you play the penultimate? To which the novice answered, No, but my brother plays the American organ. Many of my generation of authors had reason to love him, for he was a human and kindly critic. His writing, however, was really dreadful. It was of him that the story was told that an author handed one of his letters to a chemist for a test. The chemist retired for a time, and then returned with a bottle, and demanded half a crown. Better luck attended the man who received an illegible letter from a railway director. He used it as a free pass upon the line. Payne used to joke about his own writing, but it was a very real trouble when one could not make out whether he had accepted or rejected one story. There was one letter in which I could only read the words Infringement of Copyright. He was very funny when he described the work of the robust younger school. I have received a story from blank, he said, five thousand words, mostly dams. I knew Sir Henry Thompson, the famous surgeon, very well, and was frequently honoured by an invitation to his famous octave dinners, at which eight carefully chosen male guests were always the company. They always seemed to me to be the most wonderful exhibitions of unselfishness. For Thompson was not allowed any alcohol, or anything save the most simple viands. Possibly, however, like Meredith and the bottle of Burgundy, he enjoyed some reflex pleasure from the enjoyment of others. He had been a wonderful viveur and judge of what was what, and I fear that I disappointed him, for I was much more interested in the conversation than the food, and it used to annoy me when some argument was interrupted in order to tell us that it was not ordinary ham, but a Westphalian wild boar that we were eating, and that it had been boiled in wine for precisely the right time prescribed by the best authorities. But it was part of his wonderful unselfish hospitality 
to make his guests realise exactly what it was that was set before them. I have never heard more interesting talk than at these male gatherings, for it is notorious that though ladies greatly improve the appearance of a feast, they usually detract from the quality of the talk. Few men are ever absolutely natural when there are women in the room. There was one special dinner, I fancy it was the hundredth of the series, which was particularly interesting, as the Prince of Wales, now George V, was one of the eight, and gave us a most interesting account of the voyage round the world, from which he had just returned. Of the rest of the company, I can only recall Sir Henry Stanley, the traveller, and Sir Crichton Brown. Twenty years later I met the King when he visited a trade exhibition, and I attended as one of the directors of Tuck's famous postcard firm. He at once said, Why, I have not seen you since that pleasant dinner, when you sat next to me at Sir Henry Thompson's. It seemed to me to be a remarkable example of the royal gift of memory. I have not often occupied a chair among the seats of the mighty. My life has been too busy and too preoccupied to allow me to stray far from my beaten path. The mention of the prince, however, reminds me of the one occasion when I was privileged to entertain or to attempt to entertain the present Queen. It was at a small dinner to which I was invited by the courtesy of Lord Middleton, whose charming wife, once Madeleine Stanley, daughter of Lady Hellier, I could remember since her girlhood. Upon this occasion the prince and princess came in after dinner, the latter sitting alone at one end of the room with a second chair beside her own, which was occupied successively by the various gentlemen who were to be introduced to her. I was led up in due course, made my bow and sat down at her request. I confess that I found it heavy going at first, for I had heard somewhere that royalty has to make the first remark, and had it been the other way, there was such a gulf between us that I should not have known where to begin. However, she was very pleasant and gracious, and began asking me some questions about my works, which brought me on to very easy ground. Indeed, I became so interested in our talk that I was quite disappointed when Mr. John Morley was led up, and I realised that it was time for me to vacate the chair. There was another amusing incident on that eventful evening. I had been asked to take in Lady Curzon, whose husband, then Viceroy of India, had been unable to attend. The first couple had passed in, and there was a moment's hesitation as to who should go next. But Lady Curzon and I were nearest the door, so possibly with some little encouragement from the lady, we filed through. I thought nothing of the incident, but some great authority upon these matters came to me afterwards in great excitement. Do you know, he said, that you have established a precedent and solved one of the most difficult and debatable matters of etiquette that has ever caused ill-feeling in British society? The Lord Chancellor and the College of Heralds should be much obliged to you, for you have given them a definite lead. There has never been so vexed a question as to whether a vice-wren, when she is away from the country, where she represents royalty, shall take precedence over a duchess. There was a duchess in the room, but you, by your decided action, have settled the matter forever. So who shall say that I have done nothing in my life? Lights of the law, whom I have met from time to time, I think that Sir Henry Hawkins, then become Lord Bampton, made the most definite impression. 
I met him at a weekend gathering at Clifton, when Mr. Astor was our host. On the first night at dinner, before the party had shaken down into mutual acquaintance, the ex-judge, very old and as bald as an ostrich egg, was seated opposite, and was wreathed with smiles as he made himself agreeable to his neighbour. His appearance was so jovial that I remarked to the lady upon my left, It is curious to notice the appearance of our vis-à-vis, and to contrast it with his reputation, alluding to his sinister record as an inexorable judge. She seemed rather puzzled by my remark, so I added, Of course you know who he is. Yes, said she. His name is Conan Doyle, and he writes novels. I was hardly middle-aged at the time, and at my best physically, so that I was amused at her mistake, which arose from some confusion in the list of guests. I put my dinner card up against her wine-glass, so after that we got to know each other. Hawkins was a most extraordinary man, and so capricious that one never knew whether one was dealing with Jekyll or with Hyde. It was certainly Hyde when he took eleven hours summing up in the Penge case, and did all a man could do to have all four of the prisoners condemned to death. Sir Edward Clark was so incensed at his behaviour on this occasion that he gave notice, when Hawkins retired from the bench, that if there were the usual complimentary ceremonies, he would protest, so they were dropped. I might, on the other hand, illustrate the Jekyll side of him by a story which he told me with his own lips. A prisoner had a pet mouse. One day the brute of a warder deliberately trod upon it. The prisoner caught up his dinner knife and dashed at the warder, who only just escaped, the knife stabbing the door as it closed behind him. Hawkins, as judge, wanted to get the man off, but the attempt at murder was obvious and the law equally clear. What was he to do? In his charge to the jury he said, if a man tries to kill another in a way which is on the face of it absurd, it becomes a foolish rather than a criminal act. If, for example, a man in London discharged a pistol to hurt a man in Edinburgh, we could only laugh at such an offence. So also when a man stabs an iron-plated door while another man is at the other side of it, we cannot take it seriously. The jury, who were probably only too glad to follow such a lead, brought in a verdict of not guilty. Another distinguished man of the law who left a very clear impression upon my mind was Sir Francis Jeune, afterwards Lord St. Helier. I attended several of Lady Jeune's famous luncheon parties, which were quite one of the outstanding institutions of London, like Gladstone's breakfasts in the last quarter of the 19th century. I am indebted to this lady for very many kind actions. Her husband always impressed me with his gentle wisdom, and with his cultivated taste. He told me that if every copy of Horace were destroyed, he thought that he could reconstruct most of it from memory. He presided over the divorce courts, and I remember upon one occasion I said to him, You must have a very low opinion of human nature, Sir Francis, since the worst side of it is forever presented towards you. On the contrary, said he very earnestly, my experience in the divorce courts has greatly raised my opinion of humanity. There is so much chivalrous self-sacrifice and so much disposition upon the part of everyone to make the best of a bad business that it is extremely edifying. This view seemed to me to be worth recording. End of chapter 23